Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. Today we're going to do a wrap-up episode for Seasons of Season of Mists. I just want to call it Seasons of Mists. I don't know why. Just as a reminder, uh, over on our Patreon feed, we have a bonus series where we are covering Alan Moore's historic Swamp Thing run, specifically the first volume of Swamp Thing written by Alan Moore, uh, the saga of the Swamp Thing. Uh, so uh, if you want to be able to catch that, you should join us over on Patreon. And we greatly appreciate all of our support um, from our patrons making that possible. Yeah, we really, really cannot thank you enough for all the support that you give us. And we've gotten to do this bonus series on Swamp Thing. We've also gotten then to do this uh, bonus series that we did on At the Mountains of Madness and also Star Trek movies. Uh, There's bonus holiday episodes and just all sorts of other fun stuff. We've gotten to do all of that because of the support that you give us. And yeah, we're so grateful for that. Before we begin, or really before we get into the episode, let me give you a little roadmap of what we're going to do. So at the end, we will go over our favorites, as we normally do. That's uh, issues, covers, panels, characters. We're also going to talk about the physical volume of Season of Mists. And uh, we've each got a bit of a theme that we want to explore a little bit more, or at least maybe not necessarily a little bit more, but in a little more focused manner than we were able to do in the individual episodes. But we are going to start, as we always do, by talking about Dream's character arc. I think for Dream's character arc, what we're seeing is he finally is admitting he has, that there is fault attached to what he did. I don't think he fully comprehends it and has not really brought it on and is not as remorseful in the conversation with Nada as one would hope. But he's not quite the petulant child that he has been previously. There's a great bit, of course, in the interaction with Nada, Glenn, where Dream is upset with the way Nada is speaking to him and she says, well, what are you going to do? You know, send me to hell. I feel like he's making some progress, um, but he's still pretty callous. Um, and we see this interaction of how callous he is with, with, uh, with Lita Hall and with uh, Nula um, and with some others still. So what are your thoughts on the progress that Dream is making or not making as a, a being in the universe? Yeah, it doesn't really feel like he's made a whole lot of progress. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really feel like he's moved f- too far away from being uh, fairly uh, self-involved and and even perhaps fairly self-righteous. Uh, you know, certainly not considerate of the the feelings of others. I mean, he's he is lacking in in empathy. I mean, that is something that we've seen with him from the start. It doesn't seem like that dial has moved a whole lot. Certainly for a human, it has not moved a whole lot. But I do actually think that the dream that we are dealing with in the last issue of Season of Mists is a more empathetic figure than the dream that we meet in the first issue of Season of Mist, and certainly more empathetic than the dream that we meet in the entirety of Preludes and Nocturnes. So there is some you know, character growth, some character development for him that we see here, but it is, it's still small. You know, I'm not sure how emotionally satisfying it is, you know, for me as a, a, a reader, uh, though, of course, that's not actually what I'm going to Sandman for, but, you know, for people who are interested in big emotional character arcs in the literature that they're reading, I'm, I'm still not sure that Dream is really the character who is supplying that. One of the big things we encounter with Dream all the time is he doesn't deal well with change uh, around him. He also doesn't deal well with change himself. 
it's something we're going to see explored a little bit more. And he's kind of confronted with this head on, right? The problem is uh, that Lucifer has decided to completely kind of upend the rules of the game. There's not going to be a climactic battle. There's not haggling of any kind. Lucifer just lets Nada get taken from his domain, one would think, um, and pays no heed to that. And is just like, nope, I'm going to cause this other problem for you. And that problem is that you have to make a choice about something that maybe you don't care about. And he, he really gets vexed by this, uh, Dream does, because he has to some ways be the instrument of change. And that's not something that he's that comfortable with. And it's interesting for someone who deals with a realm that's kind of impermeable and constantly changing as the, the dreaming must be. I mean, even we've seen his castles constantly changing, partially based on his mood, but also he is taking people and things from dreams um, of, of mortals and, and, and utilizing them. So this is a constantly kind of changing landscape, but he himself is very fixed. And so the fact that he is having to deal with something that is not fixed is really causing a lot of problems. And the idea, I mean, he's very consumed by the idea of responsibility. And I think he doesn't understand then where Lucifer is going to decide, oh, I've got these responsibilities. Oh, I literally can just give them up. I can just hand over the key to hell, dust off my hands and go literally hang out on a beach somewhere in Perth. Um, and that's something that is just foreign and alien, I think, to dream. Yes, at least at the beginning. Anyway, it's foreign and alien to him. And I think for me, Brent, what you've been meditating on here really raises the question of where is this story going to go next? Now, of course, you and I have read the entirety of Sandman before and have at least some sense of where it's going to go next. But in the transition from Preludes and Nocturnes into the Doll's House, you know, we knew, we understood what type of story we were going to get in the next story arc. And then uh, you know, and then after that, of course, we had a, a short story cycle. But I, I don't think, you know, for me, I was real clear on what Dream was going to get ep- up to in the next installment of the ongoing saga at the end of Doll's House. And I, I have that same feeling here. What's your sense? I mean, setting aside any kind of future knowledge that you have and trying to get into the headspace in which this is the first time you're reading this story, I mean, where is Dream's story headed, do you think, at this point? I mean, because I think for me, one of the, the things that jumps out here is this idea that you can quit your job. It's something he sees Lucifer do. Nada asks him to do it, says she has asked him to do it before. He says he can't. And so for me, that feels like the next place for Dream's character growth, his emotional growth to go is, I don't have to be this job. Maybe I don't even have to do this job. I could sip jippers on the beach too, or something like that. I think he definitely is now in a mood where he wants to revisit decisions that he or others have perhaps made in the past. Here he's wrapped up this problem, but perhaps he now is in mind to think, wait, are there other things that I should revisit and try to make amends for. It feels like he maybe can loosen up his approach and explore more things about maybe his own identity, but also revisiting decisions he's made in the past, or even revisiting people from his past, whether it be trying to either fix the relationship or settle old scores with desire, or whether it be try to figure out what happened to his lost brother. I don't know. What What are your thoughts as to what would seem like the 
the natural approach for him to do next. Well, I really like this idea of of him having to make amends with uh, other characters we haven't even met yet. I think that's actually a really cool idea for a story. But I do think you know there are some uh, there there are some threads that are left dangling here at the end of season of mists, though few of them really with dream. I think the one that we get with dream that that is real glaring, and we called a lot of attention to it when we got it in the previous issue or the, uh, on our previous episode, and that's Loki. Right? What is it that they have gone off to talk about? About what is the favor Loki is going to do for Dream, and and what kind of trouble is that going to get Dream into? Seems like, you know, that's kind of the thing that's really sticking out. But there is still this animosity with Lucifer. You know, it's not clear at all that Lucifer has quit that animosity. He's quit his job because you know the beach is nice. And uh, that's cool, but it's not clear that that animosity is gone. So that's also perhaps something that's uh, that's left dangling, a thread that's left dangling. But the other thing that I don't know that I really had paid a whole lot of attention to on any of my previous reads of this story arc are all of the things that these ambassadors have that Dream also would like to have, at least a little bit. These fragments of his soul, these uh, dream essences, and so on. And so going off to collect those things, to try to find some way to get them, that also, I think, uh, you know, is a great story hook. Yeah, I think there definitely is something there. I mean, he was offered the bits of, you know, dream essences from dreamers and by... Uh, the Lords of Order representative, uh, Lord Kilderkin, and his response is like, why would I need that if I needed it? But still, if somebody's taking something that feels like should be part of your realm, maybe selfishly, it's like, I don't need that, but you don't get to have that. That's not okay. Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot maybe going on there. Well, let's do a few more things here in, in thinking about this arc, this story arc here. And what I have in mind, Brent, is just to revisit the prophetic lines that we get early on in the story now that we have concluded this story and see if they make more sense to us or if there are still lingering questions. And we got prophetic lines early on from from two different uh, uh, people, well, I guess groups of people, right? Because one of them is the fates. We get them in the prologue. And then we get in the, the proper uh, chapter one, we get uh, some prophetic lines from Hob Gadling as well. Let's do the fates first, since they show up first. And uh, let's go through this line by line. So their first line is, a king will forsake his kingdom. Uh, I guess that's something we see, right? That, that's Lucifer, right? Right. I think that's the only king we see forsaking his kingdom is is Lucifer. I think some of these other ones we can interpret a couple ways. But that one, that's really all I had. Was there something else that you had on that one? No, I think this is the clear-cut one that I, I could only map onto Lucifer. But then the next two are a little more puzzling, right? Life and death will clash and fray, and then the oldest battle begins once more. And to be honest, Brent, I'm not sure that we actually see those things at all, at least not without you know doing some, uh, some, some wriggling. Taking them one at a time, Glenn, uh, the life and death will clash and fray, I think there's kind of one particular issue where definitely we're seeing that, which is at the boarding school where we see the ghosts returning. Uh, so we see Charles Rowland having to, you know, who is alive, deal with, you know, being at the mercy of those who are dead um, and ultimately be killed by them. So I think there's where we have a direct life and death clashing. Although I think also in some ways – the family meeting could be thought of in some ways as maybe life and death 
clashing in that death literally is death. There's personification there, right? But life in some ways is most of the rest of the family. Like desire (laughs) and death arguing is arguably death arguing with some aspects of life. Uh, Death and dream kind of arguing is death arguing with some aspects of life. Like I, I almost feel like maybe take destiny out of the picture, but it could be that the other siblings are life when added together because they're aspects of what it means to be alive is to, to, to experience these things. And then death is the other side of it. Right. I mean, I, I don't dislike this reading. I think it's actually a really important way to think about the, the endless for sure. But in terms of what the fates are telling us, in fact, telling destiny, right? What is going to happen next? I think it's got to refer to the, the dead coming back to the world, which, you know, as we talked about when we covered that issue, uh, Gaiman initially had intended for there to be significantly more story about that than we got. And so uh, I think these lines matter more if what you have in mind is you're going to do three or four issues on Earth with the dead coming back. They matter less when you're only going to give us the one story that feels that kind of cut out actually from the, the the main the main story itself but no I think that must be what they're what they're talking about there and then we also had speculated at the time that the the oldest battle that begins once more must be this battle between good and evil or, or battle between God and Lucifer it's essentially the oldest oldest battle is the war in heaven that has been uh, much like the Korean War in a, uh, a a truce but never actually ended. But I, again, I'm not so sure that we see that battle beginning here, unless, you know, we're supposed to to read the end of Lucifer on the Beach as a kind of uh, ellipsis. Yeah, I really struggled with this one as I was thinking about it uh, last evening, preparing for this session, actually, because um, I'm not sure we do see it begin again. Um, I think you're right there. I think that the line sounds great, but it, it's just not there. And I mean, I guess in some ways... It doesn't quite fit, but Remiel and Duma taking up the role means that hell is starting up in its own different way. So it's more that the oldest battle, uh, but the pieces on the board are being slightly reset for another game of the oldest battle of chess. But we also are told that the battle is over, I believe is the line we're given, and that hell is now within you know, the domain of heaven. And so the battle's over and Lucifer on the beach is him, if anything, having like a rapprochement with, with its creator. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm at a loss on this one. Well, let's move on then to, to talking about Hob Gadling's uh, prophetic lines here. This is the toast that he gives when uh, he and Dream are enjoying a very nice and very rare bottle of wine. And he says, to absent friends, lost loves, old gods, and the season of mists, and may each and every one of us always give the devil his due. And we clearly see lost loves and old gods. I don't know that we need to elucidate that any more than we already have. But what about absent friends, Brent? Who is that referring to? I think it's primarily probably referring to the uh, the lost brother. Um, we do see that most of the members of the family express regret that the brother is not coming. Was there someone else that you saw as a potentially absent friend, though? 
No, I think that that's actually a really great reading here. I mean, we definitely get a real sense of of pathos and and loss when Dream is talking about the prodigal. Uh, Clearly, it's an issue for the entire family. We see that in the prologue, that there's some real tension there, uh, you know, for each and every one of them. And then also the whole family dynamic is fairly tense when discussing that. But then also the way that he interacts with, with Bast or the way that he discusses the prodigal, this absent brother with Bast, shows a lot of, of concern and care. And I, I, I think even, you know, some, some grief and, and some, some loss. So I think that's a great, uh, I think that's a great candidate for who's meant there as uh, absent friends. So each and every one of us always give the devil his due. Did the devil get his due? Is it the just reward, so on, so to speak, for Lucifer? Uh, is it that dream angered Lucifer and now he has to suffer the consequences? What, what are we reaping and what are we sowing here, Glenn? Yeah, it really seems to me like no one is giving the devil the devil's due. It's the devil is giving everyone else their due here, right? The devil just says, never mind, I, I, I quit. Uh, I'm just going to, to quit. I'm going to leave my post and I'm going to go sip jippers on a beach and, and just you know, quit this stupid rat race that, that just doesn't mean anything. Uh, so it really seems like that is reversed to me. I don't see Lucifer here suffering in any way. I don't see anyone else in this story kind of, you know, getting some kind of comeuppance on Lucifer. Uh, if anything, it is the other way around. So thinking about this, Glenn, I think perhaps the devil finally gets his vacation. So that's his <laughs> yeah. due. Like, you know, right. as I think about timesheets, as I certified some the other day for uh, some people I supervise, I thought, yeah, leave. Leave is good. People should get more leave. Um, and that's basically what I feel like the devil has, in this case, Lucifer has been able to do is to finally take his leave. Uh, and yeah, in some ways it's cause he quit. Uh, but he probably also has a lot of just leave stored up. If he wants to come back, maybe it's just a, you know, leave of absence temporarily, probably with pay, uh, frankly, but I feel like he complicated dreams life, but only temporarily and maybe only for like a week. So. I I don't even feel like the devil really got, at least in the bounds of this collection, we don't see this destruction of, of dream that uh, um, we are meant to see. Uh, it's something we may have to revisit as we go forward with the ramifications of things that he's done. But within the context of, you know, this, these, these two hard or soft covers or digital covers, depending on how you're reading it, um, I don't feel that we really see that the devil got his payback of dream. He slightly complicated Dream's life. Like, that's... Eh? Yes, and it's not clear if he still wants that or not, although I suspect that probably he does. I, I don't know how long Lucifer can really enjoy sipping jippers on the beach, right? I, I, I feel like he's going to get bored very quickly and, and want to get up to something. That's my sense of, of who he is. Though, I like your reading of this about you know his, his vacation days having never been used. He's been in hell, we're told, for 10 billion years. Uh, at two weeks a year... Uh, you know, the fuzzy math I just did in my head is uh, that's a, about a hundred million years of vacation time he has saved up that he has never cashed in. So, uh, um, yeah, he could be on that beach for a long time before he has to go back to work, I guess. Well, let's move into our, our our themes and motifs segment for this episode, Brent. And in episodes past, we've we've had a variety of things to talk about, and I suppose we we could hear, but. This story arc, Season of Mist, as we will talk about when we get into our assessment part of the episode as well, is really, really, really doing 
a whole lot of world building. And so that's what we're going to talk about here. Brent is going to talk about uh, the, the building up of the fantastical universe, especially in terms of uh, incorporating things from elsewhere in DC Comics. But I'm going to get us started by continuing to think about Lucifer and angels and hell. This is a topic that we have talked about a lot as we've read the individual issues. And so here, you know, for the next five minutes or so, I really just want to tie some things up. Uh, I definitely need to offer a correction, but I also want to pose some questions now that we have read the entire story. And I'm really only going to talk about Dante here. I'm going to talk about the Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy is a poem. It's written in Italian in the early 14th century. It is in three parts. These are three massive volumes. And each part deals with a different part of the Christian afterlife, maybe a region, a different region of the Christian afterlife. The first part is hell. The second part is purgatory. And then this final part is heaven or paradise. And the conceit of the Divine Comedy is that Dante himself has actually taken a tour of these places so that he can write this edifying and also educational poem for people. Now, of course, this had a a massive influence on culture, uh, pop culture, and also theology, and really everything in between. And Dante is also regarded as essentially having invented the modern Italian language. Uh, Really, right, Dante is to Italian what Shakespeare is to English. And of course, we have seen Gaiman really engage with Shakespeare quite a bit in The Sandman as well. So Dante gets a tour of hell. He writes a book about it. And this has really shaped many of our ideas about hell ever since. And this is true for the the Sandman as well, though it's also not true in some really interesting ways. And this has actually been something of a, a revelation for me as I was thinking about what to talk about in this segment. Now, famously, Dante depicts hell as this uh, downward spiral. It's got nine levels. These are all called circles. So it's the the nine circles of hell as you kind of descend into the pit. And each circle is devoted to a different sin or a different condition with these getting worse as we go down. And of course, at the bottom of all of this is Lucifer or, or Satan or the devil. And the whole thing, all of hell is is blocked in, in some way, but there is a gate uh, in order to get into hell. And this, this gate bears a really famous inscription. These are some lines uh, or a phrase that I think everybody knows, even if they don't actually know where it's from. And this inscription is, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And then after the gate, so you go through the gate, after that, there's a place called the vestibule of hell. And this vestibule of hell, this is for people who never chose God or chose Satan during their life, people who remained neutral. And this includes angels who did not take a side during the war in heaven. Now, once you get beyond this, there is a broad river. Uh, This river is called Acheron, and you have to get ferried across the river Acheron by Charon, who's uh, from ancient Greek religion. Uh, The name of the river, of course, comes from there as well. Charon, you know, famously uh, the ferryman of uh, of the dead or the, the ferryman of Hades. But Dante has him here in hell as well. And it is then only at this point that you are actually in the ninth circle of hell. And the ninth circle of hell is limbo. Limbo is for people who simply could not receive the Christian ritual of baptism, uh, which is to say people who just didn't have a choice in the matter. 
And famously, this includes everyone who lived before Christ. And so Dante populates Limbo with all these famous poets, especially, but also famous rulers and other types of characters from antiquity. So, you know, Virgil, in fact, is Dante's guide, the the Roman poet. Virgil is his his guide here. And we see lots of other figures from Greek and Roman uh, history and, and culture. And Limbo is essentially a big castle with some adjacent areas. It's actually pretty nice. No one in Limbo is being punished, and it is an eternal life that is essentially the same as life on Earth. But of course, what you don't get when you're in Limbo is an eternal life in the presence of God, which is the best thing. That's the thing that everybody should actually want. And I made a big deal out of trying to locate Limbo in one of our earlier episodes when we first get to to hell. And in doing so, when we were having that conversation, Brent, I gave the impression that Limbo is outside of hell. But in fact, Limbo is actually this first proper level of it after you cross the river. But there is a reason why I made that mistake. And it is that as Dante continues down into hell, passing through circles two, three, four, and five, he then comes to a wall that separates upper hell from lower hell. And this wall is the wall to the city of Dis, which is a a city in the middle of hell. And we have talked about this before. We talked about the city of Dis way back in Preludes and Nocturnes uh, in the issue A Hope in Hell, where we actually encounter the city of Dis. And that was also a a place or a moment, I guess I should say, where I made a serious mistake in uh, uh, calling something a minotaur when, of course, it was actually a satyr. So there's just something about the city of Dis that I think really trips me up, Brent. But uh, yeah, that might actually be a good sign, I suppose. But uh, at any rate, that is where I confused myself in trying to locate Limbo, which is that without thinking about it consciously, I saw the depiction of the Gate of Hell here in Season of Mists as the gate to the city of Dis. But that is not true. That That's not what is actually happening either in the text or in the art. What's happening is that Gaiman has just done something very different here. So rather than have the the entrance to hell be a kind of cave that leads to a vestibule, that leads to a river that surrounds the circles of hell, which you then travel down before you get to a, a wall, Gaiman envisions all of hell as having a wall. And then the city of Dis must be somewhere in the middle of hell, also still having a wall. Although, to be clear, we don't actually see that in Season of Mists. So now that I've gone through all of that, I actually want to back out of this description of hell to pose like an actual discussion topic for us, Brent, which is just to talk about how Gaiman is depicting Lucifer very differently than Dante. Uh, Again, famously, Dante depicts hell as cold rather than hot. And the reason that it is cold is because it is far from the light of God's love. And the circles grow colder and colder and colder until we reach the bottom where uh, Satan or, or Lucifer, if you prefer, is actually encased in ice as a prisoner. Obviously, that is not how Gaiman is depicting Lucifer here. Not only is Lucifer not encased in ice, he is in fact free to leave hell and just go to earth and hang out on a beach and watch sunsets. So what I'm taking from all of this, Brent, is that it really seems like although Gaiman borrowed the Grove of Suicides and also the City of Dis from Dante way back in Preludes and Nocturnes, here in Season of Mists, Gaiman is really, I think, doing away with his debt to Dante and instead is creating a version of hell that is his own. It's a a version of hell that fits better with the fantasy world that he's building. 
And I, I guess I wonder, Brent, how much of this is Gaiman doing his own thing? And how much of this is Gaiman trying to bring his hell more in line with the way that hell is depicted in other DC comics? I mean, I think a lot of it is that he is bringing his hell in line with DC comics, but also he's set up a conception of hell where the former mortals, still mortals, the, the, the souls that end up there <laughs> have end up there because they think they should be there and because they think they should be punished. And he has described in interviews, Neil has, that hell is unique to the person. And so, and we, we see this mentioned with, with the young boys in which, you know, there's a series of hallways and there's someone just behind you. Like we don't see anything where there's a series of hallways. We mainly see great vistas where there's piles of bodies, right? He described in Sandman Companion, uh, written by High Bender, in an interview with High Bender, he mentions that for him, hell would be staring endlessly at a blank page, not thinking of an idea to type and that that's what a hell is for a writer. So if the conception that we have in kind of modern thought as to what hell is, is, you know, pitchforks and flames versus what Dante gave us, where it's, you know, frigid cold, the, the farther you get from, from God's light, then that's what you've got because you've got so many more people dying now. So I'm guessing that that's warping the image, but I feel like somewhere we would probably see these other parts. And when I thought about your description of, you know, and discussion of where is dis in relationship to other things, but I think it's just kind of a lot of it is depending on what you expect to see and want to see, which I think kind of the whole thing somewhat falls apart as soon as you layer in demons in some ways. And it also falls apart when you layer in the idea that like, Okay, if hell for Neil Gaiman is sitting in front of a screen and hell for, you know, one of the, the ghost uh, boys is running through a hallway, is that hallway near a room where that screen exists that's blank? Is it near where Lucifer is f would have been frozen? Uh, putting aside Lucifer, I guess. But, you know, it, uh, those who in Dante's time maybe would have felt hell is cold uh, versus those who expect, you know, pitchforks to, to sear their flesh. I think that in some ways these things simultaneously maybe exist and overlap each other. And I think they just don't, I think the realm doesn't have the same restrictions of physics and geography that you'd put with a different realm. Similarly, uh, we had a lengthy discussion at the time about where limbo was in relationship to the gate. I remember this. And as you were talking just now about where limbo would be, I think I came to a, the opposite conclusion you came to in which I decided before you revealed your answer of where limbo was at, that limbo was that realm that I, at the time I think argued it wasn't uh, outside <laughs> the gate, but still on the plane. Cause I view this as, is thinking of things of, as planes. And so literally there is a plane of hell that may have a number of, you know, tears to it, but that limbo would be over the river, which we don't see, but on the plane, but not within the locked gate where those who are suffering live. Cause that gate looks like you don't go through there unless you have to suffer. So the Grove of Suicides is through the gate, but if you're not really meant to be in that, but you're just in that outer ring, that's the 
outside of the gate. But I feel like the um, we're being presented with the fiery, hot version of hell for the two reasons, to get back to your question. One, that's the depiction that we get elsewhere in DC Comics. And two, that is, as we are the readers, this is how he assumes we might view hell, not the way scholars of Dante. I feel like, you know, there needs to be a different special edition of this Sandman comic for those who are scholars of Dante, which just changes the art so that things are (laughs) blue instead of red. Um, and, uh, the demons get to wear intricate coats, um, while the people suffering, uh, get to suffer in shivering cold. Well, there are, of course, other important cultural depictions of hell besides Dante. I, you know, as I said, I got cued into thinking especially about Dante simply because Dante is so obviously the major influence in Preludes and Nocturnes. But, you know, we there, there, there's some Milton going on here. And as we have talked about many times, also some Hieronymus Bosch. And it, it just seems to me that, it, you know, the one issue that we had in Preludes and Nocturnes, Gaiman was much more focused on Dante's vision of hell than on some of these others. But where here, actually, Dante's just kind of fading into the background a little bit more as as we're bringing things into line with the rest of the DC universe, but also as Gaiman is thinking about what types of stories he wants to tell and is expanding the, the Sandman world as well. And uh, uh, that's actually something you're going to talk about, Brent. So where do you want to start us out on that topic? Let's talk about the Endless first, because uh, that's where we start off uh, with the comic. So we've encountered many of the family before, but not all. This is the first time we get to meet uh, Delirium. Something is not quite right with Delirium. But we get desire and despair back. Um, we get discussion of the prodigal, and we get the sense that they all miss him. Uh, we get a lot more destiny than we've received before. Destiny is, again, not a Neil Gaiman-created character. Um, he was one of the hosts of kind of DC anthology comics before. So Neil is kind of leveraging that, but uh, kind of that playing alongside the siblings he has created, um, including Delirium, is, is kind of some fun bits. But again, with Delirium, there's just a lot of questions we have. And then with the wonderful way they decide to uh, depict the word balloons for the character um, with the fantastic and just terrifying stories she tells. And in some ways, the things that she talks about that she's done to people almost sound just as bad to me as some of the things we see visually happening to people in hell, in my mind, of just if if you happen to hit on her in a club, then she'll do this to you. Or if you're, you know, a girl who she likes, then she will do this to you. But yeah, so I greatly enjoyed kind of this uh, actual addition to the family that we get in the in Delirium, but also a little bit more information here and there about some of the siblings, uh, the cult that Despair is associated with, just to give a little background about Despair. I don't think we ever hear anything more about that cult in particular, but um, just to have it be something other than just the the dark twin of Desire. Um, I think there's some... the some fun additional world building going on with, with the siblings. Do you have any thoughts on delirium or any of the other additional information we get on the siblings and these? Uh... 
if Neil Gaiman were ever to take requests for stories to write in, in any in any medium, I think that uh, near the top of the list of stories that I would request from him would have to be one about this, uh, this cult of despair in Afghanistan. I want to know so much more about that. I want a story that is either set in that cult or uh, a Lovecraftian story about someone you know, contemporary discovering the horrifying existence of this cult or, or something like that. Uh, that was a world-building detail that I just absolutely adored. But clearly, yeah, I think delirium is very, very cool. The idea that something has happened to take the I guess, initial, original, perhaps innate condition of the universe in which delight is one of the uh, most important principles or conditions of, of sentience of consciousness, to have that be transformed into delirium is such a cool idea. And I can only imagine that that is this is an idea that Gaiman is going to explore more in The Sandman, and I'm excited for that. In addition to The Endless themselves, we see a lot more characters, both from DC continuity as well as kind of elsewhere, that Neil, like, brings into weaving this tapestry of the larger world, um, which is great. So revisiting DC Comics characters, we of course have ones that Neil has previously brought into the fold. Specifically here, I'm thinking really about um, Lita Hall, where briefly we have the visit with her and her son. It's kind of a check-in of what's happened since Doll's house with them. Um, so we see that she seems very happy, uh, though unsure what to do with herself now. And uh, still very, very angry, um, appropriately so, um, and protective, appropriately so, of her child. Uh, we then have Dream name the child uh, Daniel uh, with a D. So that's fun to see Lita Hall brought in. Um, there is the brief reference about how there recently was a war in hell, and we talked at the time when we talked about the issues in which uh, Etrigan had done a whole power struggle thing to try to usurp Lucifer, and Neil had to delay the trip to hell by one issue so that that could resolve itself uh, because he wanted to kind of acknowledge, as required by the editorial, uh, that there is part of DC continuity here, um, but didn't really want to deal with it. He wanted Lucifer to be the thrust of the story and not like Etrigan is there doing rhymes at Dream. Um, and not having that kind of history of, um, I mean, they've interacted before, but not having the history of the animus that uh, we have. Lucifer also not being able to grab someone with such wonderful outside DC continuity kind of roots in um, Western writing as Lucifer and the devil um, to be a character. He also, though, um, brings in, as he's weaving in the mythology of real world mythologies, he takes the time to weave in the Lords of Chaos and Lords of Order um, within the DC universe, um, and specifically the Lords of Order and what they're doing with the Gray Man, with these dream essence pieces, which is kind of a fun way to connect things up. And it's also a great way for him to be dismissive of that being anything that matters to his comic, um, <laughs> which is kind of a fun twofer to have when you're dealing with the larger continuity of like, I'm going to acknowledge this. He does this, I guess, with the, with the hell, um, uh, usurpation kind of attempt by Etrigan too, of like, I will acknowledge this other thing as existing in the continuity. Uh, for those of you who are aware of what's going on in continuity. And so you can kind of place it in your, you know, 
grand, you know, scheme of where everything fits, but also say that does not matter for this story, right? Um, I'm reminded at this point of the Holy Grail by Monty Python, where there's the uh, aptly named Sir not appearing in the story. <laughs> um, but we see the Lords of uh, Order and Chaos, but we see his particular take on it, which we this is not a take that we've seen before, um, where working with the artists here, there's the brilliant depiction of the speech bubbles where we have like the, you know, very rigid boxes versus the crazy, you know, bubble text um, of chaos. And then the actual depiction where Lord Kilderkin is a cardboard box instead of being like, you know, Dr. Fate's helmet or, you know, a uh, giant gavel or something. Right. Um, and then the Lords of chaos, instead of being, you know, splashes of color that look like, you know, Kirby crackle or something like that, or just smiling teeth that would just like it look, it's part of a Zizel. Instead, it's just like, Nope. Shivering Jemmy, princess Jemmy is the depiction of what a Lord of chaos chooses to look like. Um, because, that's perfect. Um, and I, I, I can go on and on about how much I, I love that depiction of Lords of Chaos. And so that's where Neil takes these existing DC mythological constructs and layers it in and puts it on par with um, these other people we meet, um, these other mythological figures where he brings in uh, Thor and Odin and Loki and and weaves in then, as we've talked about, the bits of other DC continuity with the Just Society of America and the fact that the Golden Age Sandman is off somewhere trapped in this, you know, sphere. And he's like, oh, well, that sphere is something that Odin created to particularly try to simulate and game out uh, what Ragnarok would be like, which is fun models and simulation stuff to think about. Um, <laughs> but to also then bring in all these other mythological figures, you know, Bast we've seen before, um, I believe, um, we'll see again. There's also the nod at one point that the Greek gods are, um, not there. So they must know something. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's not a Sandman continuity reason why the Greek gods aren't there. My, my understanding, um, and I think Leslie Klinger may mention this and or Highbender and the Sandman Companion or the Sandman Annotations, that it's purely that at this time, the Greek gods are off doing their own thing into Wonder Woman comics. And so it's kind of acknowledging that. So, but even by not having them there, but acknowledging them tells you at least some of the Greek gods are real, even if you're not reading Wonder Woman. So you don't know that Ares actually is like a personified being in this universe. It's a fun way to bring in all of these mythologies and put them next to each other. It reminds me a lot of when you and I were young, Glenn, going to the library and um, looking at the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons books in the library and seeing like, here's the stat block for you know, Thor, and then comparing it to the stat block for, you know, any of these Egyptian gods, like Tara, and like, and, and I, thinking about a, a cosmos in which you can weave in that all of these things can be present. I mean, we already have it from, um, facade that we know that Ra is a thing, right? Um, so here we see other parts of the Egyptian deity, but it just kind of weaves it all in and it continues to put it in there and it takes the endless and it sets them, kind of at on par at least and at in more so kind of above many things um 
And then it weaves in with the angels and with Lucifer and the discussion of the creator. There's kind of a lot of mythological world building going on here. And I, this is one of my favorite series um, of comics in part, particularly when I was younger, because I loved so much all of the various threads that are part of completely different quilts that he's decided to make into one massive quilt. There are a lot of ways in which Season of Mist is the Council of Elrond of the Sandman. Uh, one of them is that a huge part of the story is actually just a bunch of people gathered together in uh, uh, one place that also has a really spectacular library and are talking a lot about the plot of 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 something, right? So there's a sense in which that happens. But of course, one of the things that is going on in the Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Ring is a lot of world building and uh, explanations of uh, important backstory that we're going to need going forward. And there's a lot of that here in Season of Mist as well. And, you know, what comes before the Council of Elrond is actually all my favorite part of the Lord of the Rings. The birthday party. Well, yes, there's a birthday party, which is fantastic, but just small bits of world building, building up a, a sort of smaller world with a, a fairly tight uh, point of view and gradually exploring the, the wider world. And we've actually really seen Gaiman doing something similar with the Sandman so far, although on, on a bigger scale to begin with. I mean, the scale of the whole thing obviously is significantly bigger, actually, than The Lord of the Rings is. But there are some real parallels there. It's not the first time that we have pointed out some parallels between The Sandman and uh, Tolkien's Legendarium and, and won't be the last either. But yeah, I mean, I love everything about the, the world building that happens here. I think it's absolutely spectacular. It really just blows up everything that we've uh, encountered so far. And it makes me so eager to see where we are going to go next now that uh, the sandbox that we have to go play in has just been uh, exponentially expanded. It's so cool. And it's a lot of great waving at things he's already brought into continuity as well as new people associated with it. So uh, the introduce introduction of the two ghost boys who are going off to go have adventures who do appear then later in some things as the dead boy detectives. It's kind of continual wheel world building that will give and give, even if not within the Sandman continuity, these provide fodder for stories we'll see elsewhere, particularly in the vertigo imprint of DC as long as it exists. And still today, um, I have not watched it, um, and it will be some time uh, that it's been out since you and I have recorded. So probably by the time this episode releases, I will have watched it. But uh, Shivering Jemmy apparently uh, does make an appearance in an animated film um, that has been released by DC, um, which I'm sure probably barely resembles the character here. But this is the origin of the character. I had no idea that. Shivering Jemmy appeared anywhere else outside of uh, this volume of Sandman. So uh, yeah, let's make sure we go check that out at some point because, uh, well, I just like hearing you talk about Shivering Jemmy. I think uh, I will not be surprised, though I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, if uh, she makes an appearance in the uh, Favorite Characters Who Are Not Dream segment of this episode. Uh, but before we get to that segment, there's actually a lot that we're going to do in between. But let's move now into talking about the volume of the season of mist, the, the physical volume that we have. And of course, there are different versions of this. We'll do our best to uh, cover all of that material. But let's start by talking about one of the things that they all have in common, which is the title. They are all called Season of Mists. Spoiler, all the uh, all the editions of Season of Mists are called Season of Mists. 
As we talked about in the the first episode, Season of Mist is the first line of Keats's poem to Autumn. This is from 1819, and the line is this, Season of Mists and Mellow Fruitfulness. And we did talk about this in the, the first episode. We, we pointed out the, the nature imagery. We pointed out how it's essentially a, a walk through the seasons in England from a, a pastoral or bucolic point of view. We also talked about, or you let me know about this, Brent, about how Gaiman misremembers the word fruitfulness as frightfulness. And so the poem, or at least the first line, but I think really even the whole poem, has a different connotation for him. And so now that we have read the whole story arc, Brent, do you think that we see mellow frightfulness here in Season of Mists? I think we do, kind of in a number of points throughout. I think when Dream tries to you know, first go to hell. He is terrified to be there. Um, he is terrified with what, how it ends in which Lucifer kind of gives it up and hands him a key that he doesn't know what to do with it, but it's not, you know, explosions in the sky occurring above the plains of hell. It's, it's kind of a laid back thing. Like he just travels somewhere and floats around a little bit. And the devil literally is on the beach sipping a drink but he's also still the devil. He's still Lucifer, as you pointed out, Glenn. So I think mellow frightfulness is is the way you would regard Lucifer on a beach sipping a drink. Yeah, I think mellow frightfulness really does work here. I mean, I I, I do like this idea that that's just like a, a euphemism for the devil hanging out on a beach. I mean, that's that's fantastic. But yeah, I mean, one of the journeys that we've had through the Sandman so far that, that you and I have had to go back and actually do a little bit of correction on is that... The origins of the Sandman are horror comics, right? That this is, uh, you know, that Preludes and Nocturnes is marketed heavily as a horror comic. The people who are writing the introductions to the first two volumes we've covered are horror writers and are playing up the the horror element of the the Sandman. But that has started to to shift and that's going to continue to shift as we go and just sort of where we went a little bit wrong in thinking about that early on. And so there's a sense here in which the frightfulness of the early days of the Sandman comic itself has actually kind of mellowed. And here, again, just thinking about this in its kind of Council of Elrond capacity, this moment, this arc is a big transformational moment in the story where we are moving, I think, from the horror roots of Sandman into something that is going to much more resemble uh, fantasy, have, have I don't know, not just even one foot in the realm of fantasy at this point, but one foot and maybe a couple of spare shoes as well. But then we've discussed there are a bunch of subtitles. I did want to mention that in Highbender's Sandman Companion, uh, Neil does mention kind of what his thinking was behind including these kind of Somewhat exhaustive summaries um, as subtitles for a given issue. He says, quote, Even the chapter titles are in a Victorian style, strange, drawn-out things that very intently try to summarize everything. I mean, there are surprises as to what happens, but in some ways he tells you all of it at the top of the, you know, when you when you open the comic by page three, you get the summary of what's going to happen in this issue. 
Yeah, a big part of the fun is the the suspense of it, right? You, you you know what's going to happen, but what you don't know is the manner in which it's going to happen. And it's fun to be on the lookout for that sort of thing. I actually think it's really fun. Coincidentally to our covering season of Mists, uh, Elizabeth and I have been watching Murder, She Wrote on the, the internet. And we've been delighted to discover that, you know, this 1980s murder mystery show, serialized, heavily serialized murder mystery show, actually begins every episode with a tonight on murder she wrote and gives you essentially a 90 second trailer of the episode of like clips of the episode that i think we instinctively find kind of appalling now in our our culture that fears spoilers and also our culture that can just you know binge tv shows has it all sort of at our digital fingertips but actually it's something that we came to love about the show was that it was teasing us with this, right? The whole thing's a big teaser and we're sort of on the lookout for what actually is going to be the consequence for this scene that they have decided to show us or how is the manner in which they're showing us this scene in the teaser? How is that actually misleading us? How is that actually part of the storytelling device to screw up our own game of guessing who done it here? And uh, yeah, I find that I actually was appreciating that in Murder, She Wrote and also appreciating that in Season of Mist simultaneously. And I wish this is a thing that... uh, that more people were doing. But I'm on the verge here of actually just converting us into a Murder, She Wrote podcast. So let me back us away from that and move us into talking about the volume uh, covers, we should say. There are at least, to my knowledge, three covers. I have two of them present, but uh, Brent, this is really your bailiwick. So I'll let you walk us through this. My first exposure to the cover of this is for the um, limited edition hardbound where it's kind of a, a red faux leather bound uh, with the key to hell on its cover. It It is probably my favorite just because of the understatedness of it. It feels very much like it's some kind of a, an ornate book of the kind that, you know, Roderick Burgess would have somewhere in his library. And the, the the key is is embossed, right? Like you can actually feel the key, and and of course the fake leather has its own texture. So this is a, a cover that has real substance and real texture to it. It's it's very cool. It it is real cool. Uh, for the thirtieth anniversary, um, uh, and for the other printings, it mainly just kind of fits the style of um, the other volumes. So the thirtieth anniversary uh, is a Dave McKeon cover in which we get uh, Sandman uh, looking kind of pained in the corner. And there's bits of cloth that, um, red cloth that are kind of raining down. Um, there's a collection of skulls, which I think is reminiscent of, because it looks like it's on towers or gates that are reminiscent somewhat of the gates to hell. Um, we have a figure of Lucifer who is kind of sitting and he's sitting in the thinker pose, uh, which is great, um, where it's just, you know, carefully considering what he's going to do, um, which is the most terrifying way to I think envision Lucifer ever is to just have him carefully thinking about what he's going to do uh, with maybe a moon behind him, or maybe that's something else. Um, there's a lot of little things going on here. I'm not entirely sure what all of them are, but it's uh it's a gorgeous cover. This 30th anniversary cover that, that Dave McKean did, and, and Dave McKean, of course, did the initial, the original trade paperback cover as well. So he got a second chance here to to do another cover, or got a chance to do another interpretation of Season of Mist here. This one really plays up that this is a story about hell, right? I mean, we don't actually see this 
image of this skull tower inside the pages of the comic book. But nonetheless, this lets us know what we're in for. And I think this is actually really, I mean, it's a cool cover. I would love to have this as a poster hanging on my wall. And I will say that I think this is a cover that really would compel me to buy this off of a, a shelf in a, in a bookshop, uh, just without knowing anything else uh, about it. You know, that I might see this and say, oh yeah, this looks like this is something that I would be into. And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And Dave McKeon previously did in the uh, trade paperback version uh, one where it's the key um, kind of over, it looks like probably Dream's face taking up about 60% of the frame. Yeah, this one doesn't really tell us anything about what the story is. It's not even clear to me who this person is. You think it's Dream. I don't necessarily disagree with you, Brent, but it, there's nothing, there's no like iconic imagery that lets us know that that is really who this is. And so we could make an argument for it being someone else, I think, as well. I do like this cover. I mean, I love all of the the Dave McKean covers from the original run, all this, uh, you know, his artistic style here in the 1990s is, uh, is, is absolutely awesome. But I actually think think that I probably prefer the 30th anniversary cover this time around. I think I prefer it of the two trade paperbacks, the hardbound again. Um, and I really kind of wish that they uh, probably will because there's cash to be made. Uh, done this kind of for each of the volumes, although it, it very much helps that you can have the key here as a center piece. And I don't know that you can have a singular object embossed on any other volume. Like for Doll's House, I guess you could have a doll's house that feels like it's hitting it on the head oh, i was thinking uh, the corinthians sunglasses uh ah. would, would be what i would put on there and i think you would put the ruby on for for preludes and nocturnes and i don't know uh a cat or maybe a fairy i guess for <laughs> uh for dream country i mean i think this could be done and i guess what i'm really saying is dc if you need some outside con- consultancy about how to do this we're here for you and we work real cheap we, we just work for trade we just want copies when it's done yeah for your uh ninth reprinting of this it's just you know it's one of those uh you know they're, they're, they they keep printing it because they're making money yeah and of course there will be absolutely new additions that are going to tie into the the tv show uh of which we will discuss more later well let's actually open up these covers here brent and talk about the epigraph that we get inside so this is now the fourth volume where we have uh, had an, an epigraph on the the inside that comes in this this formula that i really quite like where uh gaiman gives us uh two quotations one from a character in the story you know he's actually quoting his own text and then something that actually exists in the real world. Here, that thing that exists in the real world is from Isaac Watts. It's actually from a book of songs that he wrote called Divine and Moral Songs for Children. This is from 1720. And the line is this, and I I will not sing it. There is a dreadful hell and everlasting pains. There sinners must with devils dwell in darkness, fire, and chains And then this is paired up with something that Edwin Payne, uh, the dead boy, uh, says in 1990, when this issue is taking place, he says, "Uh, you don't have to stay anywhere forever. And this pairing, I think, then points to Gaiman's idea of hell as a place where people torture themselves, that they've, they've chosen to be there. But... You know, I wonder, Brent, you know, we've brought this up already, but haven't maybe discussed it so much this episode. Does Gaiman, do you think, really imagine that the people in hell could leave at any time? That they really could just quit hell the way that Lucifer does? You've sparked on one of my big frustrations with the series, and that's 
he wants to tell this tale in which hell is something that you're inflicting upon yourself, but then he has to hand wave it away when, and he literally does so in the comic, when Nada says, you mean I could have just left any time? There's a couple problems that don't work for me about that being the case, that you can just leave any time. One, then there is, it takes away all of the rationale in my mind as to why Nada is imprisoned there. If she can just leave any time and if she doesn't think she did anything wrong. And I feel like what we get from Nada, the character is she does not think she's done anything wrong. So maybe it's her belief in the power of dream, her ex lover, that she is so convinced that he can have this power over her and she's surrendering the power. I mean, I guess that works the more I say it out loud, but um, still, I just, I don't, I don't like that we've, so taken that from her as a character that we're like, oh yeah, you could have just probably left any time. And, you know, Dream's response is perhaps like, I'm not going to answer that, but hand wavy, but it feels like it's a conflict between the impetus of the character of the story of, oh, Dream needs to go rescue Nada and, oh, I want to make this grand statement about heaven and hell. The other thing that I find kind of upsetting from an existential view is, I don't know that I believe in heaven or hell, but if there was such a place, I don't want people who th- think they should go to to think they shouldn't go to hell to be able to leave hell if there is a hell. There are many people who if there is a hell, I would very much like to know that they are definitely going there, right? In some cases because they don't think they should go there, because I want them to get their comeuppance of realizing that no, what you did was terrible to in some cases, millions of people, right? (laughs) Right. This is actually a huge moral problem here, right? Because the people who are the most wicked in in our lives are the people who have no remorse for it. So they are not on a conscious level, at least, going to think that they deserve to be in hell, right? And I think that's probably true of of most of us, even even those of us who have remorse and and guilt for things that we we have done, wouldn't want to be in hell, wouldn't want to be tormented like this. So this has some real metaphysical problems, some real moral problems on its own. This is actually, I think, one of these places where Gaiman is trying to play with Dante a little bit. Uh, Dante in the Divine Comedy, also this is just something that medieval theologians uh, talk about as well, is that hell is treated as a place that people have chosen. But it's a permanent choice. It's a choice made during life, and it's a narcissistic choice made during life in which people choose their sin over God's love. And, you know, that sin could be something like lust or uh, gluttony. Uh, You know, there's a long list of them. Well, I guess it's actually not a very long list of them. There's a very set list of sins, right? And the people who choose over and over and over to engage in their sinful behavior are doing so narcissistically. And and that's the, the theology behind people ending up in hell and the idea that it is a choice. But it is not a choice that you get to unmake. It it is a permanent choice. Hell is not a place where people are going to be redeemed, at least not unless, you know, some angels get sent down there, I guess, to to change the way that it's it's working. There are there is, though, of course, another part of the afterlife that is for people who haven't done the right things to gain immediate entrance into heaven. And spoiler, that's actually 
almost every single one of us, there is a place where people have to go be remorseful, have to go be uh, penitent and, and repent for the things that they have done in their life and work for their opportunity then to gain entrance to the afterlife where they are going to dwell eternally in the presence of God's love. So, you know, Gaiman has taken one of the ideas of Dante and played with it a little bit, but I think kind of wandered away from the uh, theological, uh, moral, and I think even metaphysical rules of that in a way that maybe just doesn't sit very well with me. So while I love, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but I, I love Seasons of Mists, or Season of Mists, uh, for all the world building it does, but I also just think that it, in some ways, just doesn't work because of what it has to do for the character of Nada, which I find upsetting. But also just the ramifications of this and it, it kind of – the downside of kind of a Western liberalism concept of the self of, right, like not doing any harm and it's just like – but you need to be counterbalancing that against the idea that there is a community and that it's not just what you think is best is necessarily the only thing that should always triumph, um, that you should – that your narcissism should let you get away with anything. And so for it to work <laughs> – there should be some kind of an external thing. And we have the idea that there are, in fact, we, you know, we get Anubis, we get many things where there are gods and stuff who literally can judge. And we get all the time people who are condemning people to hell externally, not just people choosing hell. And so I find the discussion to be interesting, but flawed. Yeah, this is not the type of world building in which Gaiman sat down and made a kind of flow chart or a spreadsheet or something like that, right? He's he's building this world on the fly, which of course it's it's serialized storytelling, so that's going to happen. And I think doing a really masterful job of it, but one of the allowances that we have to make, though it is fun for us to ask these questions and it's you know what we do here, but Gaiman of course is so brilliant at tweaking this speculative world to make it what he needs it to be thematically for the story he's trying to tell in this particular arc or this particular issue, which is, you know, that's what Star Trek does too. And uh, we can we also can quite complain about the inconsistencies in Star Trek or really any of these uh, serialized stories that are building their own speculative worlds. And I do think the fundamental, one of the fundamental ideas of this, of what if Lucifer decides to 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 quit like that is a great concept for a story and it's it's wonderful where he goes with with this um in you know in this particular volume it's wonderful to see what other writers have done in lucifer standalone comic it, it's fun to play with that as a story um and it's really great and i also do i, I don't want to sound like i'm being too down on, on neil here um because i think that it is great that he acknowledges in the text itself, in the conversation between Nada and Dream, the flaw here, right? Where Nada says, couldn't I have just left? And he says, perhaps. Like, good for you to acknowledge and not just like, let's not devote a panel to it. There's only so many panels in a comic. And so the fact that he gives some real estate to acknowledge that maybe there's something here that, you know, I'm I'm not directly addressing. Um, I, I think – shows a lot of security in the power of your own writing and it's well-deserved because he does a fantastic job. And I think that him acknowledging it is not a sign of weakness. It's, it's a sign of how strong he can be. And he kind of leaves it open then again for the reader to lay on what they want, you know, could not have left at any time. What was the thing keeping Nada there? 
more, you know, to be dealt with. Sir not appearing in this picture, right? Well, speaking of doing a fantastic job, let's go talk about the uh, the introduction and the foreword that we have to the the various editions of Season of Mist, in which uh, we have two other famous people telling us what a fantastic job Neil Gaiman is doing here in The Sandman. So in this original trade paperback edition from 1992, we've got a foreword by Harlan Ellison. Uh, Harlan Ellison's most famous, I think, for his short story, uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, and then also for having written the Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, Brent, what is your history with Harlan Ellison? Have you read much of his work? I'm more aware of Harlan Ellison as Harlan Ellison than I am the works of Harlan Ellison. Um, I did watch a documentary about him. Um, He has some very... uh, uh, strident views on things, and some of which I agree with. I, I think he, you know his his adherence to the importance that writers should be paid for the work that they do. I think there's value in in and he is right more than he is wrong in in what he is saying with that. But he's also just known, and he, I think he's very much kind of uh, crafted for himself this curmudgeon caricature caricature of himself, um, where he just. Uh, uh, his dismissiveness of things is uh, fun, and I think if I like if I read his work before I encountered more of him, I would probably be more inclined to read his work. Is the sense I get? Um, while as uh, I find him sometimes personally a little bit off-putting, and therefore it has probably contributed to me downshifting um, in my reading priority, reading more of his stuff. But have you read a lot of his stuff, Glenn? I, I have not. My my real history with Harlan Ellison is as the writer of The City on the Edge of Forever, the famous Star Trek episode, really one of the best Star Trek episodes ever. But of course, also famously, this is one of these places where Harlan Ellison is quite curmudgeonly. Gene Roddenberry did not film the the script that Ellison wrote. He took Ellison's script, said, this is a really cool sci-fi story. It's not a Star Trek story. Let me take what you've written here and turn it into a Star Trek story. And then Ellison hated that any of his material was was changed, even though what Roddenberry did with Ellison's core script is an absolute masterpiece. And so, yeah, I think like you, I have encountered the personality of Harlan Ellison more than I've actually encountered his work. But I have read some of his short stories. And I actually would really love to, well, give him his due. He's a huge monumental force in speculative fiction. Uh, He's associated with the new wave era of science fiction and is really, really influential. And I have just not read him to the extent that uh, someone who does like seven or eight speculative fiction podcasts should have read. <laughs> and I've actually been surprised that no one has uh, has nominated any of his short stories for Brandon and I to cover on Elder Sign. I assume that day is is coming at some point, and I'm, I am looking forward to it. But I think Ellison has some really astute things to say here in his foreword about the Sandman. In wrap-up episodes previous to this one, I have lamented the extent to which the people writing the forewords are really just trying to get me, the browser at the bookshop, to buy this book, as opposed to saying something meaningful to the Glenn who has already read this five times. Uh, But here, I think Ellison actually does some of that, and it really appealed to me, uh, or at least the effort really appealed to me. We'll see if we actually agree with with what he said here. But he's got this really interesting idea, uh, the concept of macrography versus micrography, which is uh, extremely difficult to say, but um, a big story versus a little story, or writing about a big thing versus writing about 
a little thing. And he lumps Sandman into this macography category, which I appreciate in part just because that's slightly easier to say than its antithesis here. But uh, what he's saying is that Sandman builds a massive world, right? That this is not a story about, um, and it's not an introspective story about one character, right? That this is a kind of extrospective story about this world and this character's role in it. I think that's an interesting observation, but I, I wonder how you feel about that, Brent. Do you agree with Allison's uh, reading here? I mean, I, I agree with it. I I took a different focus from his essay. I felt like his essay was a lot more kind of akin to the other ones we've seen where it's a gosh, this Neil Gaiman guy, he can real write, really write. You should buy the book and read it, but not anything. I didn't feel like he was commenting on the story. Well, well, to be really clear about what he's actually writing, a lot of what he's writing is this Harlan Ellison guy is really great. Also, Neil Gaiman is great too. Yes, that, that's <laughs> true. Um, so I feel like, and, and I feel like his commentary on the Sandman, none of it has to do with this particular volume of the Sandman. Um, we'll talk about the intro written later by Patton Oswalt, but I feel like the Harlan Ellison forward is very much a, hey, there's big things going on involving the Sandman. Which includes this volume. Um, so you should read it. <laughs> um, and I think that he, I think he's right to, and as for, I mean, I, I don't know who needs to hear it. Um, probably no one who is listening to this podcast. Uh, but if it's your first time and you've never read a comic book, welcome. Uh, comics sometimes can, uh, and all writing can be about things other than their characters. Um, <laughs> and I, I kind of feel like that's what he's saying is just like, you know, that this comic is, you know, he, it's more than the sum of its parts. Well, yeah. Congratulations. I felt like there was a lot of text and a lot of ink spud here. And if I liked Harlan Ellison more than I do, I feel like I would have been giddy with, uh, you know, his turns of phrase. But for me, I was left a little bit, I felt I was left wanting because I wanted him to do what the intro that Pat Oswalt wrote does, which is just like, what do you think this is about? Yeah, I think the the Patton Oswalt introduction to the 30th anniversary edition is much more emotionally satisfying for us. And uh, we should say, of course, Patton Oswalt is, you know, he's contemporary to us. He's a comedian and actor. He's, in fact, going to voice Matthew the Raven on the TV show. We, we probably didn't actually need to explain to anyone who Patton Oswalt is, but nonetheless, we did it for Harlan Ellison. So let's have some parody there. But yeah, this introduction is, you know, it's an anniversary introduction. It's a, a reflection. It's a real fanish introduction to this volume. And it's a, a fanish introduction, or, or the story, I guess, that he he tells in this fanish introduction is very similar to our own experiences with the Sandman as well. And so I think that just was a fun, you know, two-page essay for us to to read. It was really a part of my enjoyment of, of of reading the 30th anniversary edition. And so it's appealing there. But Patton Oswald also does have a, a reading of Season of Mist that he's putting forth here. And his reading is that this story arc is primarily about breaking old habits and patterns in order to bring about different, fresher worlds. And he gives some examples of this. He mentions Lucifer quitting his post, uh, characters who switch identities, dream amends past actions. Uh, Breschow is forced to give up a habit that is meaningless to him. Uh, these are interesting examples, but I, I wonder, Brent, what do you think of Oswald's claim here of his his reading of, of the this story arc being about breaking old habits and patterns in order to bring about different worlds. I think there's a lot of truth to it. And I think that, you know, he's right to point out that almost every major character goes through 
often by their own choice, the decision to change things. And I think that it runs nicely parallel with the idea that hell is something that someone chooses to inflict on themselves, so you can choose differently. And I find it a nice change from what we've seen in some of the forwards that were written at the time, which I think you're right are in your description where they're made to get people in bookstores, maybe who aren't familiar with comics, to pick up the comic book. But I think it's a, it's a really smart read on things. I also think that in some ways, both Patton and uh, Harlan, and, and in the case of all readers, like we all are bringing our own baggage to the reading of anything. So Patton, who is thinking about, in retrospect, you know, his life and having reread Sandman multiple times throughout it, sees very much the idea and focuses on the apocalyptic change that is occurring here, which it is occurring, right? Um, but that's kind of the focus he's seeing is the change, and it's partially because he's also seeing things that come after this without getting into any spoilers. Well, as Harlan sees this as a great excuse to talk about how Neil winning the awards that he's won for Sandman is a, a thumb in the eye of people who Harlan thinks should have thumbs put in their eyes frequently, right? Um, so we all take to it what, what we want to take to it um, and take of it what we take of it, which I guess is somewhat true of, you know, the afterlife you might experience, including if you end up in hell, is like your own version and it's your kind of decision there. So I think it's great. What were your thoughts on, on kind of Patton's argument about the idea of the apocalyptical change um, and kind of the individuals deciding in some ways to make these changes? I think it's a fantastic observation. I think it is, I think it is spot on here. And I do think it is also looking ahead. Not that I mean that Patton Oswalt is bringing in, you know, outside information here in his reading of of this volume, but it does point to Season of Mist as a kind of transitional story arc where we're we're kind of wrapping up, uh, maybe tying up some of the the loose ends from the previous storylines and in some ways just some of the really start tying up some of the the character elements, I suppose, and looking ahead to what's next. And I think one of the ways that we see that here in Season of Mist is that we end the epilogue with its own kind of epilogue in which we leave Dream behind and are checking in on still some of the other characters. And and even one of the scenes that we have with Dream in the epilogue is something kind of elliptical, something that has some ellipses where we don't see what happens next, where it's clear that, that Gaiman is, uh, I think I used dangling threads earlier, but I think planting seeds is actually probably the better metaphor. And so change, I think, definitely is one of the central themes here. And I, I really appreciated Oswald's uh, introduction here in spelling that out. I think it was great. It was a real joy to read. Well, we do still have one last thing here in this section of the uh, the outline, Brent, that we need to talk about before we move into talking about our favorites. And what we have left to talk about before we do that is the Audible adaptation. Yes, the Audible adaptation. So this is the beginning of the volume two of the, I would assume, three-volume Audible adaptation of Sandman. Mostly it Hughes pretty close to the text. There are some times in which Neil, as the narrator, has some additional text to kind of substitute for the fact that you don't get the visuals. The description of Cain, um, which I don't think this is in the in the text of the comic, but the way that Neil describes Cain appearing on panel, because we know what Cain looks like at this point in the comic. We don't need to say, like, oh, and by the way, audience, this is Cain. But for an 
audio adaptation, you have to say, inner Cain, stage left, right? Um, he describes Cain as Abel's brother Cain. And I think it's fascinating to think about Cain as a character is only relevant in the context of Abel and vice versa. The first murderer and the first victim, if you will. Like, and part of that story. Um, and thinking about Sandman as, you know, prince of stories and about being about stories and being about characters and being about, you know, what we tell ourselves about maybe what we deserve in terms of afterlife, including punishment or not, being kind of central to this. The idea of describing Cain as the brother of Abel. I think it's it's a nice little nod to the the story there, but it's also an it empowers Abel in some way, even though he's nowhere in that issue, right? Where we're Cain is defined by Abel, which is not something that I think Cain the character would care to hear. Well, and of course, Gaiman has to differentiate this Cain from other iconic fantasy characters named Cain, right? And especially <laughs> since, you know, you're listening to it, so you're not sure if that's with a C or a K, right? And so, uh, you know, if you don't remember or realize that you're in a story where these uh, characters from Genesis are also you know, living, breathing characters here in this story, you just might not be prepared for that. And so, um, you know, if you're just reading that with your with your eyeball and see how it's spelled, you're gonna you're gonna know that you're gonna have a sense of who's being talked uh, about. But yeah, we for many reasons we need some kind of orienting material when that character is being introduced. And he does a, a lot of things like this. You know, I listened to this entirely while driving to and from work, and so there were many moments where I wanted to play back some of the descriptive narration that Gaiman is providing so that I could transcribe it, so that I could have it in writing. Uh, you know, I was driving, so I didn't get to do that. And so I think my real takeaway, actually, from listening to, from the adaptation in particular of Season of Mist is that I really, really love the descriptive narrations of hell and the demons, uh, the Norse gods, especially Odin at the opening of chapter five, to the extent that I actually want to have those words in print on my bookshelf so that I can take that off and, and read it that way. And I really want, I think, actually a prose adaptation of the Sandman. Uh, and it could even be a, you know, a prose treatment of the radio play adaptation. But that is something that, uh, you know, again, if you're listening, DC, um, I would buy that. So please make it. Well, it is time for us, Brent, to move into our personal assessments of Season of Mist. This is where we're going to talk about our favorites and compare our favorites to each other's and compare our favorites to um, uh, the favorites that we have picked before in previous volumes. We make no promises of uh, consistency, uh, internal or external or otherwise here, but we're going to start with favorite issues. And Brent, you get to go first. So what was your favorite issue of Season of Mist? My favorite issue of Seasons of Mists was episode five. So this is in which a banquet is held and of what comes after concerning diplomacy and bedrooms, blackmail and threats, and an unusual recipe for sausages. Yeah, it's it's mine too. And, uh, you know, this is also the one where we get all the, the private meetings. And it's really those private meetings that I love to most. I really just thought that... Uh, 
Gaiman's awesome control of narrative structure was on full display here in these meetings. I just found it really, really impressive. It is also, I think, a masterpiece of characterization. Uh, Gaiman shows us a unique motive for each character's desire for hell, and then also gives each of them a unique bargaining chip. And I think all of that is just super awesome. But I will say, just so that we're not only talking about one issue here, that this did just narrowly beat out chapter four for me, which is the Dead Boy Detectives, which I thought for sure was actually going to be my favorite. But it's a it's a close runner-up. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were going to go with four or five, but I thought those would be likely. I was tempted to go with three when we first see everyone kind of coming uh, to make their arguments, uh, before they, you know, the arrivals, um, and dream not wanting them particularly to arrive yet. Talking a little bit about how it compares to prior, you know, favorite issues we've had for me, uh, Sound of Her Wings, I think was my favorite from Preludes and Nocturnes and, uh, the collectors from Doll's House. And, uh, we both, I believe had Dream of a Thousand Cats, um, as our favorite from Dream Country. Chapter five is very different from any of those. Um, there's a, quite a lot of out of world building going on, um, lacing in all these mythologies, having a lot more kind of discussions. You know, there's some mythology going on and some bits about dreams connection with the real world, I guess, in the collectors. We don't really have dream connecting with the real world. We don't, there's not a lot, the mortals that appear in chapter five are just I mean, they're literally serving staff, right? We don't, we don't really get them as fixtures in here. We, we see him interacting more with his peers or near peers, if you will, rather than um, with those who kind of exist on the quote unquote normal plane, um, which Sound of Her Wings and Collectors, I think very much we get to see Dream and his family's effects and relationship with normal folks. Um, and that's not at all what we get here. What we get here is kind of high mythology building, um, and lore. And I love it. So where does this rank on the, on the list for you then? Has this gone to the the top is chapter five, your, your new favorite issue of, of Sandman, or is it in the middle? Is it on the bottom? I think it's probably near the top just because of my love my childhood love of the idea of reading about mythological characters and then thinking about like, well, what if they all interacted together? Uh, how did it compare though to dream of a thousand cats? Um, and I believe, uh, your favorites were hope and hell from preludes and nocturnes and men of good fortune from doll's house. Yeah. I think chapter five of season of mists here goes in below all of these and really for me, it probably goes quite low on my list of favorite issues so far, where I would definitely have, I think, every issue of Dream Country above this. Also, I would add Collectors and Sleep of the Just to to that top list as well. So I think of the 28 issues that we have read so far, my favorite issue from Season of Mist probably goes in at you know, maybe number nine or number 10. And uh, I have not, you know, reassessed Dream of a Thousand Cats here in any way. Dream of a Thousand Cats remains my favorite issue that we have read so far. So how does uh, your favorite non-dream character from Season of Mist compare with your favorite non-dream characters from the prior collections. Yeah, again, I have kind of surprised myself here in who I have selected. I think going into 
I think even going into reading Season of Mist and especially going into thinking about doing this episode today, Brent, I expected that I would pick Destiny or the Dead Boy Detectives, or I guess they're not actually detectives at this point, but the Dead Boys, right? And I'm actually going to pick Odin. Uh, I really, really like Gaiman's depiction of Odin as this aged leader who is wearily trying to save his people from destruction. There's some profound sadness in this characterization that really, really moved me. And then I think actually the Dead Boys probably were a, a close second here. You know, if the criteria were, who do you want to read more about? It's going to be these characters, I think, rather than Odin. Uh, good news is we will read more about these characters at, at some point together. But yeah, that's who I picked. And and then in terms of, of how does Odin compare with the favorite non-dream characters I've picked in the past, uh, who have been the Fates, uh, who of course also actually appear here in Season of Mists, uh, have been Gilbert and also Urania Blackwell. Well, look, G- Gilbert. It's always Gilbert, right? Gilbert remains my favorite. I think this might not be true forever, but I think this is going to be true for a long time. Well, who was your favorite non-dream character in Season of Mist? I mean, this will be surprising to everyone and completely shocking, but my favorite character is the envoy from the Lords of Chaos, Shivering Jemmy, uh, <laughs> aka Princess Jemmy. I just think it's great. Um, I I love that as a DC Comics fan, Neil found a way to bring in the Lords of Order and Chaos and with the artists depict them in a way that elevates the concept of what they are, but also just screams both order and chaos. Um, Lord Kilderkin just loses out because he's boring, um, while Princess Jemmy is just fun just artistically you know seeing this little girl wearing you know her mother's dress that doesn't fit at all carrying this balloon giving dream the balloon making this threat and becoming like a you know um kind of a monster you know in doing so but then when it's all said and done you know dreams like so are you gonna send all these things after me and she's like no i just made all that stuff up i just didn't want them to have it we don't really care. Have a good day. When I think about chaos, I feel like people, both in reading DC Comics, but also when I think about chaos, like if I'm running a role-playing game or I'm thinking about it, then I feel like people um, want to impose too much order on their chaos. They want to have too much of a rhyme or reason. And I think the fact that um, here we have chaos incarnating in a way that is very believable where it's not just like, Oh, I'm crazy and blah, blah. It's just literally, you don't know what might, what might happen from one second to the next. And it's not what you expect it to be. And that to me is chaos is it's not what you expect it to be. It's not like just the, you know, shadow form of order. It's like, Nope, it is. It is something that looks like it's the opposite of order, but is also unexpectedly. So, um, compared to my prior favorites, um, Gilbert, of course, and of the two, I think I would probably put Gilbert on top as well, just because he has so much more that he gets to do. I mean, he is the, the action hero of Doll's House, if you will, um, <laughs> which is great. Um, the Siamese cat from Dream Country um, is fantastic and does get, you know, quite a bit of speech fying. Um, and the radio adaptation or the audio adaptation makes it even more great because baby new earth does a fantastic job in, in that role for the cat um who also then does the voice of bast in the audible um here um 
but I think I prefer maybe Shivering Jemmy just because of the originality and kind of the playfulness. A lot of it has to do with the art um, on that. And then um, I believe my favorite from Prelude's Nocturnes was Scarecrow, um, just because of the idea of taking a DC superhero, you know, villain character, um, but putting it in a horror comic in a way that uh, is kind of terrifying and funny. And I think it kind of hits some of the same bits of my funny bone that Shivering Jemmy does. Shivering Jemmy may have the edge just because of her originality um, in the way that Scarecrow does not, although Scarecrow very much was picked by me for Prelude's Nocturnes because he was not original, because it was Neil crafting him in and having kind of more fun with that character um, and some you know very great dialogue. But still, I think Shivering Jemmy might take around my second spot um, under Gilbert, um, but maybe above the Siamese cat and Scarecrow. Um, but I just, she's a fun character. Um, and it's, um, Young Justice, uh, Phantoms is the animated film that, uh, she appears in, um, which I have not seen yet. Yeah, we, we may have to watch that together someday. But in, in either case, I mean, we are going to be talking certainly more about Gilbert and, uh, we are, Perhaps elusively, at least, going to be talking about Shivering Jemmy, Shivering Jemmy, in the sense that we will be talking about order versus chaos in uh, uh, some of the interlude episodes that we're going to do before we return to the Sandman. But uh, I'm getting ahead of ourselves here. We're not quite ready to unveil or reveal those just yet. Uh, we still need to talk about a few more favorites here. And uh, what's up next is favorite panel. So, Brent, what was your favorite panel in Season of Mist? My favorite panel was uh, my favorite panel when we talked about chapter five, um, which was when Dream, after his discussion with Bast, is left alone in his kind of Egyptian appointed throne room, uh, but looking very, very small on his throne, not at all um, a dominant person kind of lost in the thought um, and very much not feeling like he is the one in charge, even though it is his own throne room. Um, he is holding though still the um, red balloon that uh, Jemmy previously gave him. Um, and Matthew is coming in to see what happened with him. So was that surprising at all to you after I said chapter five, which was my favorite comic that I was going to go with that panel? Or is there something else you thought I might go with? I actually thought you might go with the ceiling that we spent so much time on in in, in chapter six, but uh, no, I'm I'm not surprised. You loved the throne room, and I thought you might go with the ceiling. So partially, that's maybe why I decided not to pick it. So <laughs> well, I didn't go with the ceiling either, and perhaps in part oh. also for the same reason. But I, I will say this was difficult for me because in terms of the art, the season of mist is probably my favorite volume so far. There are just so many awesome landscapes, uh, so many gorgeous interiors, also some phenomenal exterior depictions of buildings as well. And so, yeah, this was this was tough for me, but. While I was reading the whole story again for this episode, I was really drawn to rooms in which I would like to spend a few hours reading and listening to music, a kind of you know sanctuary, a kind of escape place for me. And that room with the ceiling, the, the, the great hall actually was a, a contender there. But ultimately, I have gone with the library as we see it in chapter one, uh, specifically the panel in which we see a room with a fireplace and a few alcoves. Uh, this is also the one that has the terrifying statue that we spent a lot of time talking about. I will say that the chairs here look awfully uncomfortable. And so I would bring in in my own. Uh, in fact, what I would bring in is a couch. Uh, but still, this is my favorite panel of Season of Mists. It just just makes me happy to to look at it. And uh, I wish that you know 
some random closet door or possibly wardrobe in my house led to this library. Well, what we need to talk about next is uh, is favorite covers. I think there were, again, also some pretty strong candidates here. It's uh, my turn to go first here, and I'm going to pick the epilogue. Uh, the color scheme of, of blue and black and red really appeals to me. I also love the, the Paul Clayness of, of this image, the way that Nada is depicted up kind of just like inside of, of Dream here. Also the, the writing, the kind of made up uh, fantasy alphabet uh, that we see in the red, I think is very, very cool. And you know, this is definitely an image that I would hang on my wall, which is I think always kind of my default criteria for the covers, especially. I went with uh, the opposite end of the spectrum and went with the episode zero. Here, I love Destiny's book with the big, uh, giant, almost ripped X through it, like uh, the plans have been torn asunder. Um, Someone's plans, maybe not Destiny's plans. Um, We have the uh, head, which is missing its top as if things are kind of bubbling out of it. Um, And we have... Um, you know, the thread with the three fates kind of messing with the book um, or holding the book. I guess the threads are coming off the book. Um, we got a fun relationship there. And we also have the great blue-red color composition similar to the um, epilogue. Yeah, this is a fantastic cover. This was actually my runner-up. I guess we both liked the kind of the bookends here, the prologue <laughs> and the epilogue, and maybe that's not much of a, a surprise. But yeah, that's a very cool one. And I think especially if the rest of the decor in my home were Salvador Dali, this is the one that I would pick because it's you know the one that goes with that uh, that that theme, I guess, that style of art. It's very surreal. And that is the decor uh, and has been for a couple decades of my life for at least part of my home is Salvador Dali. So that could be why that it fits in nicely. <laughs> yes, including the the room in your parents' house where we uh, we read a lot of Sandman together. In fact, yes. the, 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 the origin story of this very podcast has uh, uh, Salvador Dali hanging on the walls for sure. It is time, Brent, for us to actually rank the volumes of The Sandman that we have read so far. You get to go first this time, and um, uh, I am playing a bit of a drinking game here. I have a prediction about where Season of Mist is going to go. Uh, of course, you have as well. You've you've said it on the air <laughs> about 20 episodes ago, but uh, I'm curious as to whether or not you have ranked this first. So, <sighs> Season of Mist was really hard for me this read because I knew I'd have to rank it, and... I was torn up until we started recording. And even in some ways now, I just kind of want to backtrack because I've changed my mind on it. I think in the past, if you'd ask me before we started all of this careful reread of Sandman, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, what are your favorite Sandman volumes? Season of Mists would probably be in the top three, perhaps even first or second. Um, I love the weaving together of all these mythological threads, the bringing in and furthering continuance of these wonderful characters that Neil has even either created or very much made his own. You know, when I think of Lucifer, I think of Neil's Lucifer more than I even think of, you know, Dante's Lucifer at this point. And so I would have said Seasons of Mist is, is, is really the top pinnacle. And it's also that I'm, I'm also very proud, um, as I mentioned, of the particular hardbound edition that I own of it. You know, it is what I had Neil sign when I got a chance to meet him. That being said, because of my kind of careful reflection in preparation for these podcasts with you, Glenn, about the story structure and about 
the overall lesson and scheme of like a hell in which we're being told anyone can kind of leave, but then why is Nada stuck there and hand waving it away? And also really the hell is not for people who actually are terrible people from history. They don't go to hell. They go somewhere else and maybe that's oblivion, but we're not, I find it kind of unsatisfying. Um, and perhaps too much, and partially it could be the times in which we're reading this, in which I'm um, kind of overwhelmed with the narcissism uh, of our age, um, and I'm overwhelmed with uh, how self-important everyone seems to think that they are, and our lack of understanding the importance and obligations that human beings should have to one another. Um, so because of that, Seasons of Mist kind of falls down the list. And again, it, it probably would have been first or second. I think maybe Brief Lives and it might have, you know, off the top of my head, I would say those are my top two volumes. Um, I think of what we've read to date, though, with Preludes and Nocturnes, Doll's House and Dream Country, I think Seasons of Mist falls to third for me, personally. I think Preludes and Nocturnes stays in its reigning position in first place for me. Um, I think it's where I had it before. Um, I, I might also be playing my fun retcon game where I'm just reinventing <laughs> what I do. Yeah. But. It is where you retconned it too. the last time we did a wrap up episode for dream country. So yeah, that's where we are currently. And I think we can always, we can always revisit this as we, as we go. So as of today, Preludes and Nocturnes, I'm going to keep in position one and pretend like it's always been there. And then later, if I'd move it, then I will pretend like it's always been there. Because similar to hell, I can just leave anytime. <laughs> uh, so Preludes and Nocturnes, number one, Doll's House, number two, and then Seasons of Mess, and then Dream Country. And I think it has to do with the story structure. It has to do with us intensively reading it this way. And again, the things I've already talked about. Um, and Doll's House just has more of a satisfying and kind of bit where all of the mythology that's being laid in works better for me with also the actual character plot points in which the mythology and the plot points kind of are disconnected in Season of Mists. Um, and I just wish it was a little tighter. Dream Country, of course, suffers because there is not the overarching narrative, but for the fact that it is part of the broader Sandman narrative, but it doesn't, there's not the overarching story. So it, it was always going to suffer because of that. But Doll's House, which is something that I just, you know, before we started this read, Doll's House was the one that I barely remembered what happened and things that I, that did happen at like collectors, I actually thought had happened in completely different parts of the series. So I wasn't giving Doll's House the credit that is due. So unfortunately, uh, in this case, I have to give the devil his due, which means the devil is under Gilbert um, and Doll's House with uh, Unity Kincaid. Um, and, uh, Gilbert and, uh, everyone else keeps, uh, right on top of seasons of mists, at least for today. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I am surprised by this and, and it was not your prediction, of course, that you made it at some point, I guess probably it was actually the wrap up of, of dream country, uh, where you predicted that season of mist would be number one when we did it and probably stay there for quite a while. And I was still anticipating that you were going to say that, but I had, I think very much the same journey with this that you did. I was surprised to find myself doing essentially the same thing. And, um, really I was worried that, uh, I was going to get kicked out of the fan club as a heretic for doing it. And maybe that will still be true, but you're coming with me, I guess. So uh, we'll uh, we'll put up a new sign in our new our new fan club uh, treehouse, I guess. But yeah, I'm actually going to even go one further than you did, Brenton, 
say that Season of Mist was my least favorite volume so far. And one of the reasons I'm surprised by that, though, is simply that the conventional wisdom among the fan community is that this is when the Sandman really arrives, it really becomes the comic that we all remember. But also because it has so much of what I love about speculative fiction. It's got world building and beautiful landscapes. But I I think, like you, Brent, I felt emotionally detached from this story because the objective of our protagonist was fairly muddled, actually, in the the narrative. And I think a a big part of that is simply because Dream was the protagonist, the, the sort of point of view character, which we haven't had since Preludes and Nocturnes. And so, yeah, my current ranking now is uh, Dream Country on top, then Doll's House, then Preludes and Nocturnes, and then Season of Mist. But, you know, that that said, although I also do share your misgivings about the morality and the kind of metaphysics of, of hell as it's depicted here, Brent, this is still the Sandman, right? So it's still awesome. I enjoyed the heck oh, yeah. out of this. And I do look forward to reading it again and also reconsidering, you know, my ranking of it again in 20 years. And it's still, I mean, it still has some of my favorite art, some of my favorite things. If, if you were to ask me, what would I like put on the wall? Because you're going to, you know, buy me a panel. Um, there is a good chance that I will pick any number of things from this volume. Um, there are some wonderful characters, both ones that Neil has put his own fingerprints all over, as well as the ones that he carefully crafted. But being at the, being at the bottom of your list, Glenn, is still uh, very high on the list of all time things that you have read, I'm sure. The fact that Dream Country continues to be your your reigning preference is, uh, I think it works just because of the power of each of those individual stories, which says a lot because I think each of the issues of Dream Country in some ways can best one for one many of the other individual issues of the Sandman run. Well, as I have said, I I do love short stories, and I in particular think Neil Gaiman is just a master of the short story. I think he's he's one of the greatest short story writers of uh, the 20th century, I, I guess we'll say, just because we like to put people in particular centuries. And well, he hasn't written a lot of short fiction since uh, the, the turn of the century, I suppose. But uh, yeah, so Dream Country, I think, is going to stay on top for me for quite a while, but uh, we'll see, and we'll have to talk about where we're going with the Sandman in a little bit. But uh, I actually want to talk about one more thing before... Before we start looking ahead, which is that even though I just ranked this volume last, it is the first installment of The Sandman that had something that I really go to stories for, and that is a strong sense of place. And this also means that this then was the first volume where I could accompany my reading with some carefully selected mood music. Mm-hmm. Brent, I don't know if this is something that you do these days. Did you do this while reading Season of Mist? Did you pick out some particular music to listen to? I did not in this case. I feel like I definitely did this back when I certainly read this stuff in the 90s the first time, and then probably subsequently I read some stuff. So what was uh, what struck you as the right mood for this as you went? I guess really what I mean here too is just is hell. Like that was really where I was like, I've got to put on some music that goes with hell. I didn't really put on anything that was meant to evoke the feeling of the dreaming. So it was really the issues where we were getting hell that I was intentionally putting on specific music. And uh, there was actually quite a bit of it, but I'll just share two things. And these are suggestions for listeners, I suppose, but also things that I think will appeal to you, Brent, at least on an intellectual level, uh, in that they are both Russian composers. Uh, The first is Tchaikovsky. Everyone has heard of Tchaikovsky because of, you know, the Nutcracker at the very least, Uh, I guess because of Christmas and the 4th of July. People have heard Tchaikovsky and heard of Tchaikovsky is what I'm saying. 
But Tchaikovsky, uh, like many classical composers, has taken a bit of Dante and turned it into music, uh, turned it into a symphonic poem, which is just to say orchestral music that is not a, 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 a symphony. It's not in a symphony form. And what he's taken is the part of the Inferno that deals with the character Francesca da Rimini. And this is based on a story in uh, Canto Five of the Inferno, where Francesca and her lover are forced to exist in an eternal embrace. Uh, they're never able to be separated from each other. And this story, I think, really reminds me, or maybe it's the other way around, but reminds me of Breschow's story about sewing together his wife and her lover. I I think really Gaiman specifically had this very famous part of the Inferno in mind when he developed Breschow's story there. And so I listened to a lot of Tchaikovsky's piece while reading, which has just this like crazy, just bombastic ending to it, just really kind of chaotic, almost alarming uh, and disturbing ending. And then the other composer that I was listening to is uh, Boris Tyshchenko. And I, I don't know if you know him, Brent. He's a, a Russian composer who was active from the, the 1960s through the 2010s. He actually has five symphonies based on the Divine Comedy. And I listened to the one that he did on the Inferno a lot. It is super dark, super gloomy, but also pretty discordant and disturbing again. I will say that Tchaikovsky's music feels more Byronic, but Tyshchenko is definitely doing hell as Mordor, and I absolutely love it. It is also something that actually postdates The Sandman. It's it's from 2001, but uh, I, yeah, I recommend any of these for, you know, anytime you're reading about hell, you could listen to Boris Tyshchenko or you could listen to uh, Tchaikovsky. Next time I'm reading about hell, I'll have to put these on and see if they work for me. Yeah, I don't know how you'll feel about the Tyshchenko, but I do think that you're going to really love the Tchaikovsky. In fact, this is a piece that I think we would have been all over in high school if we uh, hadn't been so obsessed with Rachmaninoff back then that we completely ignored Tchaikovsky. Uh, in my case, even when his pieces were on the same CD as something I had gotten for the Rachmaninoff piece. But uh yeah, all right. Before we close out this episode, Brent, we uh, need to talk about what's next because we have arrived at the point where reading the individual volumes contained in the Sandman Library in order would have us reading out of issue order, uh, have us reading out of publication order. And we want to keep reading in the order that the issues were published. Uh, For one, that actually replicates the experience of reading the issues live as they hit shelves in the 80s and 90s, but also because that is the order that you get in the other ways that people now get Sandman, which is to say uh, the other printed editions, also what you get digitally. Uh, Also, uh, to my knowledge, although I have not listened to all of it, but what Audible has done as well. And so what that means for us is that when we return to Sandman, we are going to read four stories that are contained in the volume Fables and Reflections. Then we're going to leave Fables and Reflections behind to go read the entirety of A Game of You. Then we're going to come back to Fables and Reflections, then break from it again to read the entirety of Brief Lives, and then we will finally finish Fables and Reflections. Uh, it won't actually be as dizzying as it sounds, I promise. And and certainly we will tell people where they can find the next thing that we are going to read at the end of every issue, which we do at the end of every episode, every way. But of course... We are not going to carry on with the Sandman just yet. As we always do, we're going to take a bit of a break from the Sandman, and we're going to go check out some other works by Gaiman and also some adjacent stories that uh, came up during our coverage of Season of Mists. Uh, So, Brent, what Gaiman material are we going to cover during this break from the Sandman? 
So next we'll be discussing the short story I Cthulhu by Neil Gaiman. We will also discuss his short story Snow Glass Apples. Snow Glass Apples uh, has been out in a number of uh, collections throughout the years, so you can find it any number of places. Um, and we will also be discussing uh, Batman Pavane, which is in the collection DC Universe by Neil Gaiman. And then we will also be discussing the um, uh, first season of the television show, airing on Netflix in the United States. As for the adjacent material, we've actually got some very cool episodes in store. We are finally, I think uh, long overdue, we are finally going to read something by Gilbert. And so we're going to check out one of G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown mysteries. I'm very, very excited about that. We are also going to take a look at what is going on inside of Odin's Snow Globe by reading The Last Days of the Justice Society of America. And then we will finish up by looking at the inspiration for the Lords of Chaos and Order, uh, and also the inspiration for the D&D alignment system by reading a Michael Moorcock Elric story. So you've got all of that to look forward to before we resume with The Sandman in a few months. And Brent, there is an awful lot on the, the menu here before we do get back to The Sandman. I just wonder which of these are you most excited about reading or watching? I mean, I feel like I'm excited about the first season of Sandman just because I've waited so long uh, to encounter it. But that being said, I always love a well-written Cthulhu story. Um, there's far too many that are not well-written. So uh, Snow Glass Apples, um, it's really hard for me to say because um, the things that I don't know, I'm uh, curious to read. Uh, the Father Brown story, I'm curious to uh, read, which I have not read that before. Um, I have not read Batman Pavane. I'm I don't think. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but I'm also looking forward to revisiting stuff I have encountered before. So I don't, I, it all sounds great. Um, <laughs> I think we should, uh, I think it's wise of us to separate and do different episodes for each. Um, but, uh, we could also try to see if princess Jemmy can come on and we can talk about all of them simultaneously while having piles of cookies. Yes, that would certainly would be a lot of fun. And uh, I don't know, we might even add to this list the uh, the Justice League animated film just so that we can, in fact, keep talking about uh, Shivering Jemmy, though she certainly will come up when we're talking about Michael Moorcock as well. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a great list. Uh, some of it voted on by our Patreon supporters, other parts of it uh, selected in consultation with some of our Patreon supporters. And so they have, as they always do, uh, done a great job of uh, picking out great things for us to read. Uh, and as a reminder, for those of you who are able to survive, uh, to support us on Patreon, we do very much appreciate your support. In addition to getting to vote on, um, uh, specific things for us to read, uh, for this and other things within the Clay Temple Media Network, you also have access to, uh, our read of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, as well as many other, uh, wonderful projects that, um, unfortunately are, uh, Patreon only, just so we can provide them with a little bit extra to thank them for the support they provide. Yeah, I think that is a, a good note on which uh, we should start uh, taking our exit from this episode and taking our exit from Season of Mist. So that is going to do it for us today. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums, uh, the website, or the subreddit, and let us know what you thought of Seasons of Mist. Uh, if it's not your first read, how does it hold up compared to when you read it before? Has your opinion changed? Uh, if you were to write a, 
madcap spinoff between any two characters going on some kind of buddy cop journey, who would it be in addition to, I assume, Shivering Jemmy? And I certainly will never tire of talking about the uh, the metaphysics of hell and the literary inspirations for Gaiman's depiction of it. And uh, that's a conversation I would love to keep happening on the forums and on the subreddit as well. So yeah, next time, next month, we will be back with the short story I Cthulhu by Neil Gaiman. This is not in print anywhere, but it is something that you can find on neilgaiman.com if you're someone who likes to read along with us. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>